Now I'm excited because I've come to the point that you're all here for, and that's talking about who is God. Um, I think you're going to be blessed by this message today. But from the onset, I want to manage expectations and let you know that I will, in fact, fail to do what I intend to do today. And the reason for that is that I can't do this. I can't explain the Trinity. And neither could Mike Mariner. And neither could Martin Luther or St. Augustine or Paul. How do you describe the indescribable? At best, we may be able to apprehend it, even as we cannot expect to comprehend it. Jesus instructed us, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. So today I'm going to ask that we love God with all of our minds. And I propose that we'll all be better off for it. Similar to the eternality of God, the Trinity is simply too profound and deep a truth for us as humans to understand or explain. Trying to find something to compare it to is often a losing game, as it is truly unlike anything else. To me, the subject is similar in scope to Einstein's theory of relativity which is hard to understand, understand, much less explain. Yet it is profound and sufficiently testable to be found to be true. You guys all know the theory of relativity, right? You can explain it succinctly? No? Okay, then I'll explain it real quick. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, so it took me an hour of watching videos designed for middle schoolers to get even the slightest grasp of the theory of relativity. Now, I am somebody who studied business in college specifically to avoid taking science classes like physics. <laughs> so no, I'm not going to try to explain that to you today. Suffice it to say that 100 years ago, Albert Einstein published an idea that was revolutionary, and it changed the world. Somehow the math behind it works, and therefore we have nuclear power nuclear submarines, nuclear warheads, and other such amazing technologies. On a more practical consumer level, the increasingly popular GPS system that you all have in your pocket or in your car is only accurate and therefore useful to us because it is designed with the theory of relativity in mind. Take this complex, counterintuitive line of thinking out of the software code and those satellites, and instead of giving you to your destination within a few yards, it'd be five miles away. So while most of us don't understand the science behind it, we can greatly benefit from it. Now I, find, I found one scientist's summary of the theory of relativity, uh, the ramifications of it, excuse me, particularly helpful. So listen closely. Einstein dared to say that we must now reinterpret how we view the world around us. Such a radical concept turned science on its head. And it became widely acknowledged that this discovery had somehow affected the lives of everyone on the planet. Or rather, the lives of everyone had always been affected by the properties that had only just been discovered and acknowledged. 
So now the Israelites knew that there was only one God, Yahweh. However, God hinted at and ultimately revealed in Jesus Christ that this one God could exist as three persons. Things that they thought were fixed, constant, and known were not really any of those. Hard to understand for most, hard to accept for others, did it prove to be the most beautiful and powerful discovery of all time. Now, I want to get to the scriptures, but this is kind of deep theology, so give me a couple of minutes, Grace, for background. We at Clearwater, and in the Protestant evangelical church world more generally, hold to a high view of the scriptures. It has at least five meanings to it. One, that means that the original scriptures were completely without error. That the scriptures are our ultimate authority for life, both philosophical and practical. They are entirely reliable in communicating God's truth. We must let Scripture interpret Scripture. And our theology must come through a systematic review of the entire collection of books. If we believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures, and we don't just pick and choose the ones we like, we allow Him to speak unfiltered, we arrive at the conclusion that the Trinity is absolutely biblical in the truest sense. To acknowledge the Trinity is true is to acknowledge that the scriptures are true. Not only is the Trinity, Trinity biblical, but the Trinity is the highest and greatest revelation of God. So what do we do when God's greatest revelation is so hard for us to grasp? We humbly acknowledge our limitations. We ask for the Holy Spirit's help to understand and we submit ourselves to the teaching of God's Word. So, in the remaining 25 minutes or so I have today, I'm only going to be able to touch on this deep theology. I'll point you to a sampling of passages that will build the case for it. I'll also address some of the objections to the Trinity, and we'll look at some analogies to it, for it. And simultaneously, my hope is to share the Gospel of Jesus Christ with you. So where is the doctrine of the Trinity specifically spelled out in Scripture? It isn't. You see, we arrive at the doctrine of the Trinity by taking all of the Scriptures together. Just like the Old Testament doesn't endeavor to prove the existence of God, but rather assumes it, so the New Testament doesn't endeavor to prove the existence of the doctrine of the Trinity, it assumes it. The Trinity was not revealed to or discovered by theologians after the Bible was completed. It was revealed prior to a single New Testament book being penned. The authors of the New Testament were experiential Trinitarians. Having started with the knowledge of the Father as faithful Jews, witnessing the deity of Christ first or second hand, and then being changed forever by the coming of the Holy Spirit. This doctrine or view of God was assumed the New Testament cannot be made sense of otherwise. Just like when you're writing a letter to a friend, you don't need to explain everything about yourself each time you write. You assume certain things are understood, and then you reveal new information or perhaps re-emphasize previously known information. The New Testament is not a systematic uh, theology textbook. 
but rather a collection of books that each had a specific authorial intent for a contemporary audience, which we can take practical applications and our theology from. It is the job of theologians, including me and you, to put pieces of the puzzle together. Now, the early church did this after it survived the first two centuries of determined persecution by the Romans. But they finally began to, once they were safe, they began to really focus on systemizing the theology, not for some stimulating intellectual exercise, but to combat heresy and save the church. So the, the Trinity was not created, as some secularists will communicate to you, it was not created in the third century, but rather the existing theology was formalized into creedal form at the Council of Nicaea in 325. A fundamental concept we must accept in the doctrine of the Trinity is called progressive revelation. As we read in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. Now, if you're at all familiar with the Old Testament, you understand that it forcefully argues that there is only one God, although there are some hints of the potentiality of more than one person of God existing. Then, of course, Jesus comes onto the scene, and he not only fulfills hundreds of Old Testament prophecies, but also reveals much more about the Godhead than had ever been known. Similarly, the Holy Spirit, prophesied in both the Old Testament and by Jesus himself, furthered the revelation of the Godhead at the day of Pentecost and thereafter. Add to this that we see the Holy Spirit not only indwelling the hearts and minds of the believers upon conversion, but also inspiring the apostles to write to pen the books of the New Testament so as to complete what we know of as special revelation. So, we take the totality of this revelation and conclude within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's biblical truth, but it's not sacred writ. That's the result of sacred writ. I got that from a theology textbook. I could have copied different statements from other theology textbooks, but the thing that's consistent is the three foundations, not how it's worded necessarily. So, keeping in mind these foundations, one, monotheism, there is only one God. Two, there are three divine persons. And three, the three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. As long as you read a statement about the Trinity that covers that, then you're probably working with a good definition. Okay, so how does the Bible get us there? First, it tells us that God is one. In Deuteronomy 6.4, we see Moses say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This statement was known as the Shema, which just means here. And it became Israel's equivalent of our Pledge of Allegiance, said every morning by every citizen, young and old, but in this case for thousands of years. And in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, we see that that theology remained undefiled even in Jesus' day. But I'm in Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, 
Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. So we establish that that theology was consistently believed. And similarly, the Old Testament prophet, who is the most quoted in the New Testament, Isaiah, included God's self-disclosures in two other powerful statements. The first one is Isaiah 43.10, where he says, Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. And in the very next chapter in Isaiah 44.6, this is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me there is no God. So suffice it to say that the Old Testament teaches that there is only one God. However, in that same book, by that same prophet, the same God reveals another famous and powerful passage. Chapter 9, verse 6. Famous Christmas passage. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now how is it that God can be one, and yet describe one coming who will be called Mighty God? As stated earlier, prophecy and progressive revelation began building the case that the God of Israel, while one in being, is more than one in person. The Old Testament hints of this in a number of places, including as early as Genesis 1.26, in which God says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, which is directly translating the original Hebrew words for God, appearing as both singular and plural in the same verse. This allows for more than one person to be in the Godhead, but it doesn't really limit it to three. However, going back to Isaiah, just a powerful book, Isaiah 48, 16, God says this, Come near to me, listen to this. From the first time I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. How can God, who is clearly the speaker here, be sent by God along with his spirit if not all three persons of the Godhead are in play? Hints of the Trinity in the Old Testament. Moving to the New Testament, we see a plethora of references to Jesus' deity. I'll address three that appear in the Gospels and one from one of Paul's letters and hopefully make the case uh, succinctly that Jesus identified as God, and his disciples understood him to be the second person of the Godhead. First of all, we see in the prologue to the Gospel of John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A few, few short verses later, this Word is clearly identified as Jesus Christ. This statement is purely nonsensical if you do not assume the foundation of the Trinity that at minimum, God can be singular in being, but plural in person. Later in that same book, 
chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus identifies as himself, as God, by stating, before Abraham was, I am. And this provocative statement had huge ramifications. Almost got him stoned. For one, he was claiming the name that Yahweh himself used with Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3.14, like a memory verse. Additionally, he did not merely say, before Abraham, I was, meaning I was there before him, that I could potentially be created. He said, I am, as in I have always existed. Only God can always exist. Later, after the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus appeared to all the apostles, save for Thomas, who stated that he would reject their unanimous testimony of their risen Lord unless he saw for himself and was able to personally investigate his wounds. Then Jesus himself appeared again to all of them, including Thomas, who then proclaimed to Jesus in John 20, 28, My Lord and my God. Jesus, in this moment, received Thomas's worship as proper and commended Thomas for the act. And compare that to Paul, or Barnabas in Acts 14, or the angel in Revelation 19, each of which appropriately rejected themselves being worshipped because they were not deity. And the Apostle Paul, into his letters, said in Titus 2.13, We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We could spend an entire semester on what Paul said about Christology. He held Jesus to the highest level of deity. I'd love nothing more to give you 27 other examples that argue of the deity of Christ, but we still have the Holy Spirit. Jesus, speaking in the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John, says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Later on in the same discourse, he continues, All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So we see that Jesus will be sending someone who has not yet been fully revealed or recognized up to this point. He goes further. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then a little bit later, he closes with saying, But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. I purposely emphasize, will teach you all things and will guide you into all truth this we rely on the Holy Spirit to recognize truth. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he appears to the disciples, as recorded in Acts 1, and he says, Wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 2 of that same book, we see all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So the Holy Spirit whom Jesus promised, is revealed in his fullness at the day of Pentecost. But is that his first appearance on earth? Quite the contrary. In fact, the Holy Spirit was, according to the scriptures, present at creation, and many other places in the Old Testament as well. He was present at and responsible for Jesus' conception 
and present for his birth. In a particularly dramatic scene, he was there for his baptism. As we read in Matthew 3, 16 and 17, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And that is all three members of the Godhead in one scene. How about that? Add to this that the Holy Spirit was there to assist him through his temptation in the desert, present for actually powering all of Jesus' miracles, present at both the crucifixion and the resurrection. I don't have time to cover each of these in detail, but through these events we observe several of the attributes or characteristics of God present in the Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit was doing things that only God could do. In addition to this, he is called God in no uncertain terms in the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 3 where we read, Peter speaking, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Last, the Holy Spirit is put on equal footing with the Father and the Son, by Jesus himself, in the famous baptismal formula of Matthew 28:19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, most of you, like me, have heard that 300 times. Something that I noticed and confirmed just in the last few weeks in preparation for this message is that Jesus indeed said, in the name of and not in the names. He is telling us that the name of God is in fact the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Three in one, indeed. So although I could spend a month of Sundays driving this point home about the Trinity, in fact, Augustine spent decades obsessing about it, what we've seen today is that the witness of the Bible is that our God is Trinity, the triune God. You can feel quite confident that a faithful review of God's word brings us unmistakably there, despite our using a term that is not technically in Scripture. Beyond the somewhat ignorant, uh, let me rephrase that, there are two major objections to the Trinity that you will most frequently hear. Some reject the Trinity because the Word itself does not appear in the Bible. However, it is the absolute undeniable teaching of the Bible. The word Sunday does not appear in the Bible. The word Bible does not appear in the Bible. Does this mean we ought not recognize the foundational importance of them in our lives? Or as one scholar put it, if I believe everything the Bible says about topic X and use a term not found in the Bible, to describe the full teaching of Scripture on that point, am I not being more truthful to the Word than someone who limits themselves to only biblical terms but rejects some aspect of God's revelation? 
we completely reject anybody who says the Trinity is not biblical, especially for that reason. The other one is that the idea that three in one is contradictory. It's hard to understand, but it's not contradictory. Properly understood. The Trinity doesn't violate the law of non-contradiction because God is one in one sense and three in another sense. Christianity does not claim God is one in one sense and three in the same sense. But rather, he is one in being and three in person. Now, our culture uses analogies to try to communicate points. All analogies for the Trinity fall short. At some point, they all become heretical. Um, however, there are some common ones that I hope that you'll stop using if indeed you are. Water is a very weak analogy for the Trinity. Yes, that is, technically water can be in three different forms. It can be in vapor, it can be in solid, and it can be in liquid. But it can't be all three at the same time. The idea that it can be one thing in three different forms is a form of heresy that the early church had to reject called modalism. Something that just has three different modes that rejects the deity of Christ. Another one that is often used is the egg. You have the shell, you have the white, and you have the yolk. And that is technically three in one, but they are completely different forms, and they're also different substances. Apple is similar. Skin, meat, seed. Those physical ones have real limitations. I'm not suggesting that I am more brilliant than 2,000 years of analogies, but this is what came to my head. Uh, so... Um, as I was reading one of the books that talked about revelation unfolding, and I thought of God as a single piece of paper, one piece of paper, one God. And the Old Testament hints at the deity of the coming Messiah. So if everyone in Israel was thinking about this one God, and then they start reading Isaiah or hearing Isaiah, they start thinking, maybe our understanding of God is a little bit different than we always understood it. He's still one God, but this is hard to make sense, hard to reconcile. Now, when Christ was born, his deity is revealed in his life, death, and resurrection. This paper starts to develop a fold. Does that reconcile Isaiah? It's the same form. But there's a distinction being made. And then we see that after Christ's ascension, the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. And through his personal attributes and powerful godlike actions and the names he is called, he is also revealed as deity. Which leaves this single piece of paper now divided into three. The three unfoldings of God are each fully God, yet they are distinct parts of the Godhead, each with a specific role. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Do you want to slightly twist that analogy, and I'm writing a, a paper, and I'm trying to communicate a thought. I'm going to have my introduction, I'm going to have the body, and I'm going to have the conclusion. All right. You're not really done preaching until you talk about the gospel. Without the work done by each member of the Godhead, there is effectively no gospel. The gospel is thus. We as fallen human beings have a sinful nature, and we live out that nature in our actions. God is perfectly holy and cannot abide sin in his presence. 
God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross in place of us so that our sins could be properly and finally dealt with. If we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and did what the Bible claims he did, then we are washed clean of all unrighteousness and we are imputed with the righteousness of Jesus who lived a perfectly sinless life. It is the joyful transfer where we let go of all we never wanted and we are given all that we ever wanted. So what's the Spirit's role in the gospel? We would have no knowledge of God or acceptance of Jesus as our Savior if it were not for the Holy Spirit revealing these things to us. As we already read, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. This line of thinking is expanded upon by Paul when he wrote in Titus 3, 4-7. I'll read this slowly because I want it to sink in. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Just to put a little flag on that, Romans 8.30, Paul writes, Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. You see, we don't choose Jesus. Jesus chooses us. And the Holy Spirit is how he sets the hook into our hearts. As one of my favorite theologians, Dr. James Wright, author of The Forgotten Trinity, a book I highly recommend, put it this way. The gospel is the means by which the Father, in eternal love and mercy, saves men through the redeeming work of the Son, Jesus Christ, and draws them to himself by the power and regenerating work of the Spirit. The gospel, as it is proclaimed in Scripture, is Trinitarian. Remove the Father and you have no gospel. Remove the Son and the gospel ceases to exist. Remove the Spirit and the gospel has no existence. There is no separating the work of the triune God in salvation from the truth of the Trinity itself. Circling back to my opening illustration of Einstein's profound discovery, I'd like to reread that scientist's summary. Once as it was originally penned, and once with a few nouns changed to modify it to fit my larger point. Listen close. Einstein dared to say that we must now reinterpret how we view the world around us. Such a radical concept turned science on its head, and it became widely acknowledged that this discovery had somehow affected the lives of everyone on the planet. Rather, the lives of everyone had always been affected by properties that had only just been discovered and acknowledged. Okay, here's my take. Christ revealed that we must now reinterpret how we view the world around us. Such a radical concept turned humanity on its head, and it became acknowledged that this discovery had always, had somehow affected the lives of everyone on the planet. Or rather, the lives of everyone had always been affected by truths that had only just been discovered 
and acknowledge. See, it's hard to explain, yet it's undeniably true, and it's impacting us all. Our God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May he be forever praised.